This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Peaceful protesters on 53rd Street in Chicago last night. One of many demonstrations in the city over the weekend in response to the death of George Floyd, a black man from Minneapolis. Floyd died after now former police officer Derek Chauvin was seen on video with his knee on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. From Minneapolis to New York, D.C. to Detroit to right here in Chicago, across the country, people have taken to the streets to express their hurt and their outrage. Today on Reset, we take stock of what's happening and start to talk about the steps needed to achieve racial equity once and for all. But first, a breakdown of what happened here in Chicago. I spoke to Matt Harvey, general assignment reporter for The Tribe, and WBEZ politics reporter Dan Mihalopoulos, both of whom covered protests here in Chicago over the weekend. So, Matt, tell us about your experience over the weekend as you covered the protests around the city. Where were you and what did you see? Um, I was uh, basically all over downtown. Um, I was I started off from my uh, uh, protest at uh, Daily Plaza. That's where I was covering it at first. Um, it migrated over to about Wagner and Wabash, and then eventually protesters uh, used Lakeshore Drive to uh, end up on a magnificent mile. And can you describe what the scene was like for us over the weekend? Um, I think that uh, it started off very much uh, focused, very focused and very uh, grouped together. Uh, it was a, a crowd of about, I'd say, three, 4,000 people in the beginning of Daily Plaza that uh, ended up being it, it kind of fractured off uh, at different points throughout the day. And uh, some of those people ended up looting. Some of them were people who came downtown just to loot. Um, some of them stayed, uh, held ground against, uh, officers and some started to do things like, you know, I, I posted one of the videos on my, on the feed during the live tweeting. It was, a uh, uh, burned, um, police cruiser, uh, was burned from the inside out. So, um, yeah, it was, it, it definitely, uh, splintered, I'd say the different, uh, methods of protest. Dan, you were covering the protests on Saturday. You worked 19 hours covering the protests that day. Uh, Can you describe what you saw? Yeah, very similar to what uh, Matt is talking about. I think there was a lot of tension among some of the protesters from the very beginning, and the police uh, set up uh, various lines in the loop and then in the River North area and elsewhere. It became very diffused, very much spread out over a large area. But there were certain areas, particularly around the Trump Tower, where a lot of protesters wanted to go, and the police really held a very strong line with the help of the Illinois State Police. Around the Trump Tower, I tried to go under. I know all the different ways uh, around that part of downtown. Uh, I used to work just a couple blocks from there. 
and everything was cut off underneath by the Wendella docks up top, just lines of very, very heavily armed officers, and at various times for no apparent reason wanted to move those lines, and I think that triggered a lot of confrontations uh, with protesters that didn't really um, do anything more than flare up until it started to get dark, and that's when you saw the looting, and also I saw some burnt uh, police SUVs and destroyed um, property only a half a block from uh, the Mag Mile, I saw two uh, police cruisers that got burnt on Rush Street. So uh, it was a, a very, very different environment than clearly what you see in downtown Chicago on a normal day. Well, Governor J.B. Pritzker activated the Illinois National Guard at Mayor Lightfoot's request. Here's a bit of Governor Pritzker speaking about that yesterday. I have activated 375 members of the Illinois National Guard to carry out a limited mission to assist local law enforcement with street closures. With regard to protesters who are exercising their First Amendment rights, the Guard has explicit direction not to interfere. Matt, talk a little bit more about Mayor Lightfoot's response to protests and and other events that happened over the weekend. Um, uh, the initial response from the, from Saturday when there was, uh, the curfew was first placed in effect, it was, uh, surprise, honestly. Uh, most people didn't really get any, uh, idea of that happening until it happened. Um, and from then on, I'd say that, uh, it's been a very militant response that she's had, uh, deploying more and more police officers. She, uh, insisted that she wouldn't, uh, uh, deployed the National Guard on Saturday night, and then by Friday morning, uh, she had submitted a request to the governor for it to for them to be deployed. And I think that uh, for one, it's been really drastic. But I, I mean, it's it's drastic times. Uh, uh, there's looting going on all around the city at this point, um, and I kind of expected it to be this type of a uh, really tough response on this type of thing because she had this kind of response in in the past when it comes to dealing with uh, conflicts with police. As of yesterday, the National Guard was active in more than a dozen states. Um, Dan, as as Matt says there, Mayor Lightfoot initially um, said she she didn't plan, or the governor said he didn't plan to, to call on the National Guard, but then we saw this reverse decision. What went into this decision, and, and what is the role of the Illinois National Guard? So they're helping to maintain these street closures. You know, downtown was pretty much sealed off uh, on the second night of the looting. That's why it spread to some other neighborhoods. But I think what went into the decision, obviously Lightfoot asked for it, and today uh, Mayor Lightfoot described the sort of workload on the Chicago Police Department. She's talking about 10,000 calls for looting alone, more than 2,000 911 calls in some 30-minute periods. And so they felt uh, that a police department three times the size of the CPD could not handle what was going on this weekend. But again, let's let's put this in perspective. The CPD has roughly 10,000 sworn members, probably less than that rank and file, and you're talking about 375 National Guard. Uh, also, I, I should say that um, on Saturday, even before the National Guard was deployed, uh, there was Illinois State Police and a pretty large mm-hmm. contingent that I saw uh, marching near the Trump Tower, very heavily armed with uh, batons, and um, and protective gear, uh, riot gear, really, uh, even before 
uh, things uh, devolved into looting later on Saturday and early Sunday. Mayor Lightfoot says an investigation is underway into, quote, coordinated looting and arson that marred peaceful protests um, over George Floyd's death. Dan, I mean, what do we know about this investigation? Right. She says she's absolutely certain that it was coordinated or that there were elements uh, coordinating it, but has provided publicly zero proof of that so far. Uh, They haven't named any organization. They haven't named any people. Uh, I think the uh, police superintendent said just now there was some evidence of a group that came from Indianapolis. Um, I talked to a lot of people, and again, uh, I I didn't talk to to many of the looters on Saturday. It didn't begin until early Sunday, but if you're looking at the protesters who are out there in broad daylight from the start here, the thousands uh, that Matt and I saw uh, on that day, you're basically, um, there were, they sounded like people from Chicago to me. They had that accent. And, you know, people at the station tell me that I have a Chicago accent. And they sounded like me to me. Um, you know, there were a lot of locals out there. I can't say out of the 3,000 or however many were out there, what percentage might have been uh, from out of town or if some of them uh, went out into neighborhoods all over the city in the next uh, day or two. Uh, But we have no proof. I mean, normally I'm an investigative reporter, Jen, and um, I am uh, participating the last couple of months in this all hands on deck effort to cover the pandemic and now the situation uh, over the weekend. And uh, from the burden of proof of an investigative reporter, we've seen nothing yet from the city of Chicago to back up what the mayor said. Matt, we're hearing from protesters fears about over-policing. We heard from Dan um, his 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 witnessing of, of police making decisions and their interactions with protesters that seem to ramp up the tension. What are you hearing from people on the ground around the police response to protests? Um, I think of well, I basically heard the same thing that he's talking about. Like pro- protesters are feeling that way. They're like they're being provoked. Um, yesterday when I was out there, there was a lot of that uh, feeling. Uh, when I was out uh, yesterday about on state, I'd say about state in uh, Ohio, there was a lot of uh, protesters out there clashing with police, and a lot of it was because police were uh, pushing protesters away. Uh, and these were people that were just marching. These people weren't this, they weren't looting anything. Uh, there were some speeches given on megaphones, but these people do feel like the police are threatening them, like the the force is becoming more aggressive especially since the curfew has been in place. Uh, I actually experienced it myself when I was uh, downtown Saturday, and uh, police made me drop a bag that I had that had uh, two water bottles that I brought with me and my own Camelback bottle that I bought, and they told me to drop the bag or I was going to be arrested for uh, looting. And so they are being very uh, aggressive, especially... I think in the enforcement of the curfew. The protests taking place around the world are not singular in nature, and they haven't happened in a vacuum. As parts of Minneapolis smolder and heal from days of protests, the rest of the country is coming to terms with the city's split personality. That of Prince and the Midwest nice image of Garrison Keillor's Prairie Home Companion, but also the city that gave rise to global human rights protests in the wake of George Floyd's death. Former officer Derek Chauvin has since been charged with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter for that death. 
Duchess Harris is a professor of American studies at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. She's author of several books on race in America, including race and policing. Professor Harris just published a new essay about the protests on Medium.com. It's titled Move Over Karen. Being an Amy will keep you out of Franklin Templeton and the White House. And she joins us now to talk about this tale of two cities. Professor Harris, welcome to Reset. Thank you for having me. So as we as we mentioned, Minnesota has this reputation of being progressive and welcoming. Can you put this moment into a broader context for us, a more complex context? I will try. Minnesota's reputation about being welcoming is linked to a church system that we have here that's been willing to help relocate refugees. Many Minnesotans are well-meaning. The issue is that good intentions can pave the way to unfortunate places. So once non-Scandinavian people arrive here, um, there isn't a plan for how they could adapt to a foreign place while holding on to their culture. And that's critical, this notion of being able to hold on to what you brought with you. And so white Minnesotans tend to like you if you assimilate and become just like them. So if you're willing to go ice fishing and also make less money than they do, then you're fine. If you try to hold on to your culture and try to climb the financial ladder, then you don't fit in. And not fitting in here is sacrilege. So within that context, what are your thoughts on how the protests over the last few days have been characterized and received in Minnesota? It seems that Minnesotans are comfortable with believing that the violent protests have come from out of state. And it is true, many people have come from out of state who are white supremacists. However, holding on to that glosses over the fact that Minnesotans, okay, people who were definitely from the state, were at the governor's mansion with assault rifles in April because they had been out of work for three weeks. So when you say white supremacists are coming in, has there been confirmation of that? Because it, it seems like things are moving so quickly on the ground in every city where there's protests. Right. There there has been confirmation of that. Um, the mayor of St. Paul, who is African-American, whose name is Melvin Carter, and he is a third generation black Minnesotan in his 40s, which is pretty unusual. And his father is a retired police officer. He had originally said that all of the arrests in St. Paul um, on either Friday or Saturday night were from out of town. Um, he has since retracted that and said that it was most. Um, however, if you look at who is being detained, many of the people are not from here. And that connection to those individuals being part of white supremacist groups? Yes, yes. And that that's being confirmed as well. As you're watching coverage of the protests in Minneapolis, what do you think is getting lost? I mean, one of the things that's getting lost is how this functions around our humanity. 
um, school hasn't closed here. My daughter's in the 10th grade and she has an algebra test today um, that she'll take in her bedroom because she doesn't even want to leave her room. Um, my family's fortunate because we can't hear helicopters where we live and we can't smell the smoke. But hundreds of kids are trying to learn in areas that look like war zones now. Um, they have counterparts who are studying and their moms are making them like grilled cheese sandwiches and cutting the crust off. Um, that is not the experience for kids who are in the metropolitan area. How would you describe their experience? Um, absolutely terrorized. I mean, how could you not be terrorized? Um, my husband took our 13-year-old son out to see the area where many of this has happened, many of these things have happened, just so he could be a witness. And what you see are armored trucks and SWAT teams. And then he had to explain to our son what the National Guard was. And then the honest conversation about what it means that it's 2020 and that the Klan is actually here. And it's my understanding that the Klan was in an area called Powderhorn Park in Minneapolis um, in Garb um, on um, either Friday or Saturday night. That's a lot to process for families. There were already questions swirling about George Floyd's official autopsy report, which says he did not die from strangulation. And we should note that the video so many of us saw showed uh, the officer with his knee on George Floyd's neck for something approaching nine minutes. There, there's a huge outcry for justice in this case. What happens if the justice system does not deliver? We know protesters have called for the arrest of the other three officers who were on the scene. Um, we've heard from the police chief in Minneapolis saying that he he thinks they're standing by and not intervening mm -hmm. makes them complicit. So what happens? What's concerning is that the police are acquitted more often than not. The police officer who shot Philando Castile in 2016 was eventually charged with manslaughter and reckless discharge of a firearm. Um, once it went to trial in 2017, he was acquitted. One of the reasons why um, the people in the Twin Cities are so enraged is the only prosecution we have seen in decades has been of um, Officer Noor, um, who was an East African immigrant who um, shot a white woman. Um, he is serving time. Um, that hasn't happened with other police officers. Um, can I predict the outcome? We're in the midst of a pandemic. Um, our unemployment rate in Minnesota um, has skyrocketed. Um, for people outside of the state, you might not realize that only 25% of Black Americans own their homes, whereas 76% of white Americans in Minnesota own their homes. And that's the data before the pandemic. I feel like the fires have started. I don't know when they're going to stop. 
That's Duchess Harris. She's professor of American Studies at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. She's author of the book Race and Policing, and her new title, her new essay is titled Move Over Karen. Being an Amy will keep you out of Franklin Templeton and the White House. Professor Harris, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. This weekend's protests here in Chicago, across the country, and the world have drawn faith leaders to the forefront of public discussions about what progress could look like. One of those leaders is Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, Senior Pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ on Chicago's South Side. Here he is speaking yesterday at a press conference organized by Mayor Lightfoot. We are not all responsible for some of the actions taken yesterday, but as a city, we are all accountable. We are all accountable to build a city and to build a nation, a yet-to-be United States of America. Reverend Moss joins me now to discuss his perspective on the events over the weekend and how communities can move forward together. Reverend, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me today. So first, how, how are you doing in all of this? I appreciate you asking. As a matter of fact, we have been doing cleanup this morning at one of the businesses right down the street from our church, as I told you, your producer. And uh, that's where we are right now. And we're not all right. Uh, we, we are challenged by all that is happening in this nation right now, but all that has happened historically. Were you out this weekend? Uh, this weekend, actually, my, my son was uh, protesting this weekend. Um, we were doing some uh, internal work to make sure that we got some messages out to ensure that we were assisting people who may have been arrested, uh, providing all kinds of counsel and support. Uh, we have a strong activist community at our church, and many of them were a part of the earlier uh, protests. What do you make of the protest and and what we've seen over the past 48 hours or so in response to the police killing of George Floyd, um, Breonna Taylor, and and other incidents that have happened over the years? In the words of uh, Dr. King, we are looking at the uh, language of the unheard. And in this language of the unheard, we have witnessed over and over again black recorded death. And whether we protest, whether it is a letter to the government, uh, it is a court case. We have seen uh, the systematic racism always respond in a violent way or in a manner that disregards the deep pain and anguish of people of African descent. How are you thinking about your role in this moment? I believe that it's the role of faith leaders to be a moral compass and allow people to develop moral courage. It's not enough for us to reform, and even a revolution is not enough, but there has to be a moral revival. We need to have a moral compass to build the kind of nation that we envision. We are nowhere near uh, the nation that we need to be. There's a flaw in this nation. The original sin of America was racism, racial terror, white supremacy, however you want to share it or shape it. This has been a continual fight from generation to generation. And this generation, I'm very proud of the energy that I'm witnessing from from young people. 
because they are feeling the effects and the pain of being a person of color where literally your body is weaponized and seen as a threat and not uh, the spirit and content of your character. When you talk about a moral compass, how is that applied within the framework, to your mind, within the framework of protest, but also in the framework of leadership, elected leadership, appointed leadership? Mm. Mm, that's, a, that's a great question. The first thing, in terms of, of, of protest, I think it's important that we merge our energy with, with wisdom, historical information, that it is the call for those of an older generation to, uh, to pass on the information, to give up uh, the mantle, and to share the lessons of yesterday, to know that the protest that we are uh, doing today uh, rests on the shoulders of uh, everyone from SNCC to the Black Panther Party to SCLC, the Congress of Racial Equality, to know those tactics, the organizing of Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer, that becomes important to pass on uh, that tradition and also the compass that they function under. In terms of elected leadership, that we have to remove predatory self-interest uh, from uh, the spirit of political leadership where we are looking to win instead of looking to build. And that has become a problem in our political system that is completely broken, uh, where we are looking for, how should I say it, political feudal lords uh, who are controlling a very small portion of uh, the country and are holding us hostage because they do not have vision for everyone. They only have vision for some. So for, for many people, I think that part of the equation becomes very complicated when we look at systems of voter suppression, um, when we try to convince young people to follow that moral compass and they don't see that same accountability from elected or appointed leaders, and they look back on that history that you're describing the work that's gone before, and they say, well, wait a second, that didn't work because this is where we are today. How do you unpack that conflict and that tension when, for instance, you're talking to your son? One of the beautiful things about uh, being able to, to share with uh, your son and your daughter uh, and to have lessons that come from uh, your own parents and their, their grandparents is to let them know that we are in a continued fight, uh, that this will not happen uh, overnight, but we are going to make sure that each generation builds something, places a brick in the foundation of what we're attempting to do uh, in the future. COVID-1619 is what I call what we're dealing with. It is a public health crisis. And 1619, we should, we should, just to be clear, that's the year the first ship of enslaved Africans uh, arrived in what would eventually become America. Yes, indeed. Thank, thank you for that clarification. Mm-hmm. Um, it mutates, just like any virus. And it has been mutating from what we call slavery to the period of reconstruction, to the period of, of peonage, to the war on drugs, uh, to... The, Uh, weaponization, commodification, criminalization of black bodies today. We have to understand that first. And it's not that it didn't work. It's that it is continual work. 
And we have to be able to pass down that ethic to every generation. What we're doing today, it's not for for me. It's not for you. It's it's not even for my son. It's it's for our grandchildren and our great grandchildren. We have to lay this foundation for them. And so we have given them access in ways that my father's generation did not have. And they can utilize that energy. The other key point that you raise in reference to uh, to elected officials is that we are witnessing a time period where our democracy has been hacked by predatory self-interest and elected officials without a moral compass. And so that is why people are rising up in the manner in which they are, uh, especially within, within the African-American community uh, that we are seeing this. But the good news is we are seeing a multiracial coalition of people who are enraged, who are anguished, who are pained, who for the first time recognize that black lives matter, uh, that brown lives matter, uh, that marginalized uh, lives matter. And that's something that we can build on as a nation. We are all accountable. We may not be all responsible for broken windows, but everybody in the city of Chicago is accountable to building a city. Whether you are a venture capitalist or whether you own a janitorial service, whether you are cutting grass or whether you are cutting someone's hair, we are all accountable to building a city, uh, a city of big shoulders that will not be a hyper-segregated city that removes investment from the most marginalized uh, within within the city we call Chicago. Reverend, you spoke yesterday at, at one of Mayor Lightfoot's press conferences, and there were several other speakers, including activist Jamal Cole, founder of My Block, My Hood, My City. And here's some of him from, from that press conference. It's a difference between mobilizing and organizing. Ain't no structure in the gangs, it's all this shooting. Ain't no structure in the protests, it's all this looting. Do you know the fundamentals of community organizing? Come on, man. We got people, people breaking in to Nike. Okay, you, you broke into Nike. Make sure you wear those, those Nike shoes to the next city hall meeting, the city council meeting. Reverend, can you touch on, on some of what he, he's talking about there? Um, and, you know, the tension between you know, peaceful protest and, and other forms of protest. Well, first, I want to say that Jamal Cole is one of our gifted activists. This young man has done wonderful work. He's not only an activist, he's a poet. Uh, he is deeply committed to the community. And for those who are not familiar with him, I just want to say that it is a worthy organization uh, to to support. He is one of our leaders in, in this city, number one. Uh, and Jamal is just is spot on, uh, is that... Uh, we have the energy. There are some that have the energy, but don't want to necessarily put in the time of the meetings after meetings of how you strategize, how you plan, uh, learning all the levels of organizing. Do you know where you are going to be arrested, where you're going to go to jail? Who do you call? How do you get out for bail? All of those things. Do you have water with you? Who is going to be the nurse to support someone if they fall out during the protest? Uh, all of those are aspects of protesting uh, that we want to teach our 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 uh, church uh, our institution has been teaching these pieces along with the community renewal society which does a great job but there are moments in the midst of energy where you have people that utilize uh, those moments 
for opportunistic reasons. And from my understanding that there have been individuals who were not connected uh, to some of the organizing uh, that made the decision to do uh, to participate in destruction of, of, of property. But the point is, we are still all accountable in this city. It is easy for us to say, look, there were some people looting without dealing with the virus that is destroying, that is decaying the soul of America, that COVID-1619, that virus of racism. Let's not get so focused on those moments of property destruction and not forget about the loss of life uh, and literally the loss of spiritual breath of people in this country who have been desperately crying to breathe the fresh air in this nation that we call the United States. Reverend, you said that the protests that are happening are not for you. They're not for me. They're not even for your son. Um, They're for the generations that come after. And I think about the conversations I've had with my parents and grandparents. My parents were both born under Jim Crow in Mississippi and Georgia. And I just, how do you maintain, how do you maintain what's necessary to tell the successive generations when the promise of equality that's been fought for for generations still hasn't been met? It is the burden of being a person blessed with our beautiful melanated skin and yet cursed with the fact that America views us in a particular way. I'm reminded of what Frederick Douglass did as a person who was an enslaved African He stated that what he is doing has nothing to do with him, that America has a flaw, but I will fight because I know that there will be a moment children I will never meet will be able to live in the sun of this nation in ways that my children will never have the opportunity to. And I rest on the fact that the difficulty that Harriet Tubman took hold of. She never envisioned a Michelle Obama, but she made a way for her. I rest on the fact of a Sojourner Truth who had to change her name and deal with assault from men who did not see her as a human being, but was willing to stand toe-to-toe with racism and sexism and say that ain't I a woman. If people who existed before we were born could see a world that was not yet and imagine as if it is possible, I believe we have a responsibility to take hold of that mantle and that ethic and pass it on to our children. That's Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. Senior Pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ with his thoughts on the protests over the weekend and solutions to the ills we face as a nation right now. Reverend, it's always good to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you so much. 
And that's today's Reset. Thanks for listening. I know this is a difficult time. I know it's heavy. I know it's uncomfortable. But please lean into that discomfort and take care of yourself. I'm Jen White. Let's talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.